0: Howdy, howdy. Senior Editor Mackenzie Taylor here on the Texans Weekly Roundup Podcast. This week, the team talks about Ted Cruz endorsing opposite candidates of the governor. Sid Miller and Abbott trading critiques of border policies. A new agreement between Texas and a Mexican state. A rule change from the Biden administration on ATF gun records. Controversy surrounding a woman convicted of capital murder. Environmental and social credit criteria sweeping through America's corporations including Texas oil and gas companies, the story of an underwater rare earth mineral deposit here in Texas, and a lawmaker pledging to file a Florida-style parental rights and education bill next session. If you have questions for our team, DM us on Twitter or email us at editor at news. We'd love to answer your questions on our podcast. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Hello, gentlemen. Hayden, Daniel, and Brad are all here with me today. I'm McKenzie Taylor, senior editor here at the Texan. We have three yetis, two of which are matching. Daniel and Brad both have matching the Texan Yetis with their names emblazoned all them. Thanks to and, Connie and Phil for that.
1: And mm-hmm. I just have a lame water bottle. <laughs> well, whose fault is that? <laughs> I have my yeti at home, but I didn't bring it today, so.
0: Yeah. I have a mm-hmm. drawer full of uh, Yeti or tumblers at the office mm-hmm. and mine is in there. And yet, you, I still bring one from home which I'm holding in my hand.
2: Why do you need so many?
0: You should see my um, cabinet at home with how many Yeti products I, really I have. really my
2: question. Why do you need so many?
0: Because they come out with new colors and they're fun to get. Okay. <laughs> That's literally my answer. I only can
2: drink out of one container at a time. So I Correct. figure I only need one but container. Don't you
0: love to go to a cabinet and be like man what kind of fun tumbler do I get to drink from today? No. I do. He's mm-hmm. like, is it
2: going to keep my drink cold or hot or whatever I want it to be? Here's
0: the thing. I know that all of them will.
2: Yeah. So then you just pick one color, stick with it. Mm. Then you have to make less choices in life. Wow. It's kind of like lots of, uh, famous people always have like the same clothes that they wear mm-hmm. over and over again Yeah. to minimize their choices. Like,
0: a, uh, um, uh, um, uh, oh my gosh. Jimmy Neutron. Nope. definitely was not thinking of Jimmy oh. Neutron. Mm. Thinking of Every- the head, the head of Apple, uh, not Tim Cook. The other one.
2: Steve Jobs.
0: Wow. That was so hard. Ho- I don't know how I Mark could Zuckerberg not remember was the I was thinking Steve of was Jobs' t-shirt. name. Oh, yeah.
3: Whenever I see that, I think of Jimmy Neutron because he had, it was a running yeah. bit in the show that he would open up his closet and it was a whole row of the same outfit. I, Damn, I never watched Jimmy Neutron
0: growing up, so wow. I would not be able Did to Did he know.
3: like pause and think about
2: which one he was going to wear though? Yeah. yeah. See so that like, feels like that defeats the purpose. <laughs>
0: I don't know. I just like to be able to choose, and there are different mm. kinds of Yetis. There's like a 20 ounce with a handle. There's a I was 16 saying, are they ounce different without handles. sizes because yes. size I, is- I have
1: I have two Yetis other than the Texan Yeti, but or Yeti esque. I don't know. Yeah, if it's it's Yeti like Yeti Arctic brand, or something. They are freakishly too large to serve any practical benefit. I can't put them <laughs> in a cup holder. Hmm. and yes. if I carry it around with me, it's like I've got a, a water jug. tower <laughs> with me at mm-hmm. all times. So I guess if you're at home and you need something to hold your beverage, but carrying them around, it's a bit cumbersome.
0: Yeah. No, I have different kinds of mugs. I have different kinds of um, just tumblers. I have little wine glasses that are Yeti. So you can have hmm. wine in your Yeti if you so choose, you know, cold wine in a picnic.
3: Also, hmm.
0: all sorts of options. I'm really glad we could talk about this. This is one of my favorite things. <laughs> I really, really like.
1: I'm
3: yetis. very happy for you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I can
1: tell you're absolutely thrilled. Um, and speaking of merch, you should go to the Texan News and visit our store. Absolutely, because we have there is of one, of one of those wine awesome Yetis, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, we actually do have a wine Yeti on our st- in our store. Y'all should is definitely go get it. It is a tumbler. It is absolutely a tumbler. It's pretty awesome. Um, okay, well, let's actually jump into the news here. Brad, another top-level GOP figure has jumped into a number of Texas House runoffs. Last week, we talked about the governor. Who jumped in, and who did they announce support for?
3: U.S. Senator Ted Cruz uh, jumped into a handful of races uh, this week. Um, he chose in Numerical order of the House districts: Ben Bias in HD twelve. Um, he is challenging Representative Kyle Cassall. Ellen Troxclair in HD nineteen, who is running against Justin Barry. Um, Mike Olcott in HD sixty, who is challenging incumbent Glenn Rogers. Um, Eric Bolin, who is in HD seventy, running against Jamie Jolly and Carrie Isaac in HD seventy three who is facing uh, Baron Castile. Each of the, the opponents that I mentioned are all endorsed by governor Abbott um, in their races. And so it creates this um, loggerhead between the two Yeah, and, um, We'll, uh, you know, obviously we'll see how it plays out electorally, but um, both candidates are taking strong stances um, in opposite directions in these races. Yeah,
0: certainly. Now, just to clarify, all of these races, but four or no, but one are open seats, correct?
3: Uh, These are open seats except for two are not open. Okay. Okay got it hd12 and hd60 60, 60. with olcott and biases right. um endorsement came out earlier this year i think in february so um the rest of them all came out this week um we'll see if there are any more that come down the pike. but i'm um you know there's there are more runoffs that are happening that crews did not declare an, an endorsement for yeah um but you know we'll see what happens
0: do we expect to see something come out later on uh, to make more endorsement potentially there were a
3: couple that i was surprised. At, we didn't um that he didn't put an endorsement out one of them was hd 52 um but nothing has come yet so we'll see
0: very good okay well tell us why cruz got involved in these races in the very in the the first
3: place um so while he didn't explicitly state it uh in these endorsements other than you know touting each candidate's qualifications for the job as every top level endorser does you know they run through what makes the candidate special that they're choosing um but uh, past statements indicate um his school choice played at the very least a large role in his decisions if it wasn't the only thing informing his decisions back in january cruz said when I'm deciding who to support in a contested Republican primary, we have a spreadsheet and I pull up every vote someone has cast on school choice. If you voted against school choice, the chances of me endorsing you are essentially zero. If you voted for it, then I'm going to look very seriously at engaging and engaging hard. Now, obviously, um, a f- few of these seats are open and therefore the candidates he's endorsing against, uh, at least in the legislature, don't have a voting record. Um, to, to look at, to analyze, but, um, some of them have been endorsed by teachers unions who are not supportive of school choice. Uh, the two incumbents Rogers and, um, I I think we talked about this in the podcast last week, but Rogers and and Casal have both come out uh, expressly against a voucher system and so, um, you know, in terms of that issue itself, it's a cl- very clear choice for Cruz. Right. And um, it's not surprising the way he's come down on it. Um, now, that doesn't mean, you know, let's say Abbott's uh, endorser, endorsees win. Uh, it doesn't mean that every candidate's going to vote against what if a school choice legislation comes up. Um, but, Cruz is clearly making a judgment call on these.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting, too, in light of, you know, school choice back. in I think the 85th session, I mean, there was a rally on the Capitol steps for school choice, and it had been an issue talked about by the legislature for many years. And it kind of has been a dormant issue for the last several legislative sessions. And we're seeing that become (laughs) not the case anymore. It's starting to become a theme once again. Yeah. Talk to us about, you know, what school choice has kind of been in terms of the discussion around these campaigns.
3: Yeah, it's a it's an issue coursing through the veins of the Republican Party. And especially after the covid shutdowns, it's gained broader appeal than just you know one segment of the GOP. Um, you see independent voters talking about it, Uh, parents who are totally apolitical, now all of a sudden really political on this issue uh, because of what the school shutdowns did uh, to their children. And you add on top of that all these social issues, whether it's the um, sexuality stuff in schools or critical race theory teachings, um, all this is combining into kind of a snowball effect of this issue, making it bigger than it's been in a while. And, um, you know, we, we, saw with the, um, the heartbeat bill and constitutional carry, it took years to get those passed through legislature. Like those had been filed a lot, um, over the last decade, probably every session. Um, and they never didn't pass until now. And so, um, you know, maybe this is the session. The upcoming session is the time for a school choice bill. Um, I mean, Governor Abbott said earlier this year he expects a big push for school choice next session. Um, but, you know, some of his endorsements, it runs counter to some of his endorsements in these races. Um, you know, obviously, that's not the only issue. There are a myriad of issues to consider on this. But um, with Cruz and Abbott's endorsements, there's a very clear... Uh, dichotomy here on, on this one specific issue.
0: Yeah, certainly. Thank you, Bradley. Hayden, let's talk about the border. What was the enhanced inspection policy that Abbott and DPS instituted last week?
1: As we talked about last week, the Texas Department of Public Safety began conducting enhanced inspections of vehicles, especially commercial vehicles, coming into the state of Texas from Mexico. This was part of Governor Abbott's response to the federal government, specifically the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, announcing that Title 42 expulsions would be ended in May. So Governor Abbott uh, chose to enact this policy uh, ostensibly to reduce human smuggling and detect human smuggling deter illegal immigration however as he revealed at a press conference yesterday, part of the purpose of this policy that he stated was to put pressure on the Mexican government and Mexican states because of the problem of illegal immigration and the anticipated deluge of illegal crossings that will come about as a result of Title 42 being suspended or no longer enforced, which of course is the public health law that the feds have used since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic to expel illegal immigrants, and um, the that policy will end in May. So that that is the policy uh, that um, was the subject of yesterday's press conference.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So after or before all of that, we had some um, objection from a statewide elected official. What were Commissioner Sid Miller's objections, and what were some of the unintended consequences that he described?
1: Well, like you said, uh, prior to the press conference, which, sorry, I jumped ahead a little bit. We're going to get to that in a bit. Uh, but the, uh, uh, commissioner of agriculture, who's a Republican, very, um, he, you know, won his election in a landslide in, uh, on primary day, much like Abbott did. Uh, you know, these two men, Miller and, and Abbott, are very much, um, Generally, on the same page politically. And uh, he criticized this policy because of the reported 8 to 12 hour wait times, the rotting produce on uh, uh, freight. Uh, freight trucks that were trying to bring things over the M- Texas Mexico border and vehicles according to the commissioner's office uh, a press release that he put out were taking up to 20 hour detours to ports of entry as far away as Nogales Arizona wow. uh, to get across the border because uh, of the traffic jams that were caused by virtually every single vehicle being inspected which takes about an hour uh, for, for each vehicle to be inspected whereas before it was a randomized inspection process at these ports of entry. So Miller highlighted that. And, um, he also, uh, stated that border crises in order to, uh, mitigate them, you can't create another crisis in order to answer a crisis. Uh, and in, in fact, that is what, what Abbott did, uh, because he was creating these traffic jams in order to draw attention to the problem. Um, and uh, at least that was one of the purposes. Uh, so uh, we'll talk about the the press conference in a second. But um, uh, Governor Abbott did have a response to those criticisms. Uh, he said that uh, Miller was completely uninformed. Those were his words. And he also said, quote, he had no clue uh, what we were doing uh, because of, of the things we're about to talk about. But, that Miller um, had
0: no clue what the state was doing, correct, then, right? Correct.
1: Uh, that Miller had no idea. Um, basically, he was in the dark. And so uh, the the. The criticisms came in the form of a, a press release and remarks that he made, uh, but Miller said that he wanted to uh, refocus on litigation, uh, the federal lawsuits that are, are, I believe, are pending to get Title 42 reinstated um, instead of, you know, trying to to. Uh, create these events where uh, a lot of attention is drawn to it, and like the busing uh, illegal immigrants to Washington D.C. Uh, and uh, the the enhanced inspection policy. So those were uh, some of Miller's concerns. He also talked about the energy prices and. Uh, the U.S. Department of Labor reporting uh, increased prices, and af- of course, we have an overall problem with inflation right now. But th- that is what precipitated the remark that he was that Abbott was turning a crisis into a catastrophe, uh, according to Miller. And of course, Miller was not the only one. The White House put out a statement uh, criticizing this policy. And it's always a strange day when Commissioner Sid Miller <laughs> is on the same page as the White House. Uh, but um, some bipartisan criticism of this of this this policy.
0: So certainly we've alluded to this press conference several times already during this podcast. Let's talk about the agreement that was reached between a Mexican state and the state of Texas.
1: Well, uh, Governor Samuel Garcia of Nuevo Leon, which is a a state that shares uh, about a 12 mile border with the state of Texas. So placing this in perspective, we've got a 12 mile border with this Mexican state uh, out of about a 1200 or 1300 mile uh, border that we share with one percent correct so uh we're looking at about a one percent portion of our border but we do have a, a bridge or a port uh, between texas and Nuevo leon and um what governor garcia announced um with Governor Abbott was that the two states have reached an agreement for increased border security. And as a result of that, uh, Governor Abbott said that the policy for enhanced inspections will be uh, rescinded just for this particular port. For all other ports of entry between Texas and Mexico, the policy will remain in place. However, Abbott has said that he's been in touch with governors of Mexican states aside from Nuevo Leon and the uh, secretariat for foreign affairs, that office has also been in touch with governor Abbott and the state of Texas. But an interesting note uh, about these inspections is uh, he's the governor said 25% of the vehicles that were coming through um, were removed from service because they were deemed unsafe for Texas roads. So even, you know, with this more thorough policy about a quarter of the vehicles are being pulled off the roads, but, uh, for the New Everlyon port, the policy will go back to the previous policy of uh, randomized searches rather than these thorough, you know, virtually every vehicle being inspected.
0: Got it. Well, Hayden, thanks for covering that so thoroughly for us. We'll certainly keep an eye on what's happening down there at the border. And it's interesting to watch the governor of a Mexican state and, you know, Texas here in the U.S. kind of partner on this.
1: And some of the, I'm sorry, I can just add this, some of the rhetoric of Governor Garcia was similar to... Uh, governor abbott some of the the state pride i think he said you know our our state and and texas were the most important states in our two countries you know so it was interesting to hear you know some of the banter and you know some of uh the state pride that you usually hear from texas governors a a mexican governor expressing that it was interesting
0: super interesting thank you, Hayden. Daniel, let's talk about um, an ATF rule. So Congressman Michael Cloud has been vocally opposing this rule change from the ATF, but the Biden administration announced that it had finalized the new rule this week. What are the details of that change?
2: So there are two kind of big Points that have been talked about with this rule change, uh, the first one that's gotten a little bit less attention, but is actually what uh, Congressman Cloud has really been vocally opposed to, uh, is the one of the things that the rule changes is the out of uh, the out of business records that the ATF obtains from gun stores that are going out of business. So currently under federal law, if you're a gun seller, you have to hold on to. Uh, Records of sales uh, and transfers and who who you sell the guns to for uh, a minimum of 20 years. If your store goes out of business, all those records that you have on hand have to be transferred to the ATF. The ATF then stores that in their own digital warehouse uh, indefinitely. They have um, over 900 million records, probably close to a billion or over a billion now uh, because that was from last November, the 900 million number. All that to say, uh, the rule change that they are pursuing right now would actually require gun stores to hold on to those records indefinitely uh, so that there's not a 20-year limit on there. So anything even older than 20 years, you have to hold on to that. Uh, so that's one of the changes. The other change that the rule, the rule makes is uh, what the administration calls a crackdown on, quote, gus, ghost guns. Uh, essentially right now as federal law stands, you can order a gun parts kit and, and kind of assemble a gun yourself. Uh, those, those, parts don't have to have any kind of a serial number because it's not a firearm. What they're doing with this rule change is redefining or expanding the definition of a firearm to include uh, parts like a frame of a gun so that if you're ordering a gun kit, the frame has to have a serial number on it. The manufacturer has to do that. Uh, And then also by changing the definition or expanding the definition rather uh, to include these parts, then you also have to go through a background check to purchase a uh, one of these these frames or any any part that has uh, one of those things. Now, it's not uh, necessarily all parts of a gun. Uh, there are probably like some springs and stuff that you're going to order that would not fall into this. But if it's a, a frame for a gun, uh, then that will fall under the definition and you'll have to go through a background check to get it. Uh, unless you're, you know, maybe if you have a 3D printer and you're printing it yourself, then you wouldn't necessarily have to have that. But uh, if you're buying it from someone who sells that, for a living then you do
0: there you go so what's next for this rule
2: so the rule will go into effect 120 days after being published in the federal register so there's still a few more few more months before the enforcement begins Uh, as far as efforts to kind of uh, push back against this uh, there are many republicans in congress including representative cloud and also senator cruz who are filing legislation to push back against it Cloud had already filed uh, legislation that uh, I think over 60 Republicans have co-sponsored now uh, that would require the ATF to essentially destroy their out-of-business record system. So all those 1 billion records that they have on file, they'd have to destroy that, and then gun businesses wouldn't have to transfer any new records to them in the future. Um, another piece of legislation uh, is something that Senator Cruz announced uh, today when we are recording this podcast. Uh, he announced that he would also file legislation pushing back against both parts uh, of this new rule that I mentioned, the uh, business record stuff, and then also the um, kind of broadening the scope of a, a firearm. So... Uh, I haven't seen the text of that bill yet. I don't know if it's available, but uh, those are two pieces of legislation. Now, Democrats are in control of Congress, so I don't expect it to go anything anywhere this session, but it could set up something uh, in the future. If Republicans take back Congress, this could be one of the items that they push.
0: Wow. Well, very interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Hayden, this is a case that we've talked about very briefly before on the podcast, but let's go over it again. There are some definite um, developments here. So who is Melissa Lucio and what is the story surrounding her in Texas right now?
1: Melissa Lucio is a death row prisoner who was convicted in 2008 of the brutal killing of her two-year-old daughter who died at a hospital with injuries after she was subjected to horrific violence according to the jury's verdict and the er doctor called it the worst case of child abuse he'd ever seen in his decades as a as a doctor and um but the uh, forensic pathologist also stated that she was beaten to death and it was uh It was a horrific event. Uh, The child suffered greatly, and uh, the jury found her guilty and sentenced her to death.
0: Wow. So talk to us about why her scheduled execution is receiving so much attention and whether she could be innocent.
1: The execution is scheduled for April 27, and there was a hearing of the Texas House Interim Study Committee on Criminal Justice Reform, which is chaired by uh, Representative Jeff Leach. And they more or less confronted the district attorney who scheduled or requested this execution date. Pardon me. The execution is not scheduled by the DA. It was set by a state district judge, according to the laws of the state of Texas, and the claims are that she could be innocent based on the family's request that the execution be canceled the family believes that the girl died in an accident uh, that she fell down the stairs yeah. and i believe there were questions about a disability that she had that could have caused her to fall down the stairs and the reason why you know this hasn't this wasn't hashed out in the committee hearing and uh, I haven't hashed it out in my articles because, uh, frankly, that would be for a, a jury to decide in a in a trial and hearing the relevant evidence from both sides, and each side having the ability to cross-examine witnesses and, and evidence and all that. And the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in a ten to seven decision denied her a new trial, uh, reversing a decision that was made by a lower court. Um, but there's been a lot of media attention around this execution. And at this hearing, which I attended uh, the other day, uh, Leach confronted the DA and mem- many members of the committee hopped on the bandwagon of, of uh, questioning this DA as to why he hasn't requested that this execution date be withdrawn. And because there are questions uh, in the media about her her. A possible innocence, um, which include claims that the Texas Rangers uh, improperly elicited a confession from her by pressuring her, and the, it was an hours-long interrogation uh, that included, of course, a lot of emotion, and um, they believe that there was evidence left out of the trial that should have been included. That might have led to her receiving a lesser sentence. Um, and uh, some of the jurors have, in the media, stated that they would make a different decision. Of course, this is all outside of the law. All outside of the.
0: This so, is all after the trial, correct? Right? It's
1: after the trial, and by the way, it's you know fourteen years ago, and so this is all separate. Uh, From the media storm is separate from what's been happening in the courts. The courts have upheld the conviction. And uh, however, what the district attorney said at this hearing is there are several motions pending as it relates to this case. And, um, It is very possible. And he said that he does not believe she'll be executed on the 27th. He says it's rare for people to be executed on the first execution date. It's usually delayed and another one is set. And of course, all these motions have to be resolved before she's taken to the to the lethal injection chamber. So uh, it is possible that it could be stayed and uh, the Board of Pardon and and Paroles could recommend clemency and the governor could accept that recommendation. He could grant a reprieve, a court. Federal or state could issue uh, an injunction. There are so many different ways that this could be delayed, uh, but I, I think the focus on this case—you uh, know, Maria Lucio—that was the name of the child who passed yeah. away—and um, uh, her her name hasn't been spoken uh, as many times as it probably should be, but. Um, She was two years old, and we'll have to see the final outcome of this case.
0: Yeah, certainly. Well, Hayden, thank you for breaking down a very difficult subject for our listeners and something we'll certainly continue to see in the news over the next several weeks. Um, Brad, let's skip over to oil and gas. Um, Environmental, social, and governance criteria. It's ESG, I believe is the shorthand, is sweeping through America's corporations. Can you explain what that is?
3: Yeah, so it's a financial grading system, a kind of corporate credit score that grades companies on myriad metrics, such as commitment to net zero emissions that would apply to the environmental Um, LGBT and minority focused social issues that would apply to the social. That'd be something like um, opposition to the. governor putting out the um dfps investigating child abuse for the like use of puberty lockers that that kind of thing uh that would inform that part of it and then other things like unionization also play a factor um that applies more to the governance the governance also more like nuts and bolts of the company less political. Uh, but it still can be, um, among those who use ESG criteria, the higher, the score means the larger, the financial investment, you know, whether they're banks issuing loans or asset managers buying stocks. Um, this basically creates a hierarchy on what, um, what companies, the money will flow to, um, some companies like Blackrock the world's largest asset manager have their own grading system and use it to decide where to, to direct investments and so this ESG grading system can vary based on who it is that is um, putting this out there um, there's no like one uniform ESG uh, grader basically now um, they use these ESG has gone has flowed into the corporate boardrooms quite a bit um i think we saw exxon mobil had two of its actually three of its board members ousted in shareholder elections um and those new board members are very friendly to the environmental left and those kinds of policies and obviously exxon is one of the world's largest oil and gas companies yeah so there's a uh, a bit of headbutting there, uh, but they do it through. Uh, ESG is used through like um, uh, proxy voting. Um, you can have like in the case of Exxon, you had BlackRock and Vanguard, and I think State Street. the The shareholders that they manage. So if you put money into BlackRock and they then invest it into X company, BlackRock can then vote on your behalf in these um, shareholder meetings on whatever it is, whether yeah. it's a corporate board member or some other uh, statement of, of um, uh, preference on some, some issue what or whatnot. So um, it doesn't have to be that way, but because most shareholders just kind of invest the money in BlackRock and wash their hands of it, uh, the, they don't have, um, BlackRock and, and those types of organizations have a lot of authority over it, and they just basically, because of ignorance, get to do get to vote how they want. The other side of it is public pressure campaigns. We see that on so many different issues, but ESG is really uh, a central aspect of the way corporations are changing, um, especially politically, and um, you know that is coming to a head in Texas's oil and gas industry.
0: Very good. Now talk to us about that because you attended an oil and gas convention recently and they discussed ESG. Talk to us about what was
3: said. Yeah. So Travis Stice, CEO of Diamondback Energy, one of the, it's a fortune, a thousand company They're worth $13 billion. They defended ESG or he defended ESG saying, uh, a, that shareholders have demanded it, uh, and B it's the right thing to, to, to do now. Shareholders being, the ones who speak out now that may be an average person that holds stock, but it also may be the executives at BlackRock that are voting on proxy. Um, And so who it is, that's actually saying this that they want it. uh, That can vary based on who you're talking to Rob Capito, who's president of BlackRock. um, He took the opportunity to say that they weren't divesting from oil and gas, which is another issue that that we'll talk about in a second but um he said that you know we need to protect our environment so why can't we figure out how to do both things and get better esg is just a framework it's not a demand it kind of is demand it's um holding hostage the access to capital especially when you introduce it with banks who are um forcing companies to sign these um uh, sustainability statements in exchange for getting financial backing. Um, there's a lot more coercion involved there uh, as opposed with BlackRock that utilizes the the proxy voting stuff and still has a lot of power over it, but not quite what the banks do. And then Ed Longenecker, president of Tipro, he was moderating uh, the discussion with each of these individuals said that, uh, you know, ESG is, he told me ESG is here to stay. Even if those criteria went away tomorrow, most operators would still continue with these initiatives as part of their normal business practices. And I think that comes back to a larger issue with this. There is a demand for, for this kind of environmental sustainability, um, injection into financial companies, um, because there's some coordinated capital that's, being pushed behind this so like if a hedge fund invests in a company they want you know they obviously have priorities on this and if the hedge fund is environmentally oriented like they that is their focus which is the case in some of these then um, they push their priorities to the the governing body of the corporation and so it's very complicated um, i recommend you go read the piece to know more about it um, more in more detail but um, yeah this is it's Texas's oil and gas industry is not immune to this.
0: Got it. Now you mentioned it earlier, but how does this tie into Texas's fight over fossil fuel divestment?
3: Yeah. So uh, Texas is trying to pass a law last session, ordering the Texas comptroller to divest its money from state pensions from companies like BlackRock that are alleged to be divesting from oil and gas. ESG ties into it because ESG is the, the justification that these companies are making for, Pushing capital in one way or another based on, um, you know, environmental policies specifically with oil and gas. So that's how it ties in. And this is not going to go away. It's going to continue to be an issue. And I am sure quite sure that there's going to be something brought up in the next legislative session on this.
0: Wow. Always interesting. Thank you, Bradley. Daniel, let's talk about an issue. We haven't, we haven't talked about this in a few months. It's been a while since we talked about rare earth minerals. Um, but they've become a bigger focus these days, particularly in that the U.S. is trying to minimize their reliance on China. When you wrote about a uh, mining operation out in El Paso in December, there was another location that caught your attention. What was it and why did it grab your eye?
2: The location that grabbed my eye was Beringer Hill, which is located in Llano County. Uh, it is purportedly one of the state's largest deposits of rare earth minerals. Uh, and it's actually pretty close to Austin. You can get there. You can almost get there pretty easily. I actually went out a few weeks ago. You go drive about 70 miles northwest of Austin.
0: I believe you tweeted a photo.
2: I did tweet a photo. Hmm. No one liked it except like maybe a few people. I liked it. I think, I think Brad did and I think Holly did. I didn't? I don't think so. Okay, which is we'll it's sad, but I'm it's fine, gonna, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, you, you, you drive out there. You can almost get to the mine if you drive 70 miles. Uh, but then you have to take a boat out into the middle of the lake and go scuba diving.
0: <laughs> oh, wow.
2: So the this location is actually underwater. It's underwater.
0: So if it's mm-hmm. under underwater, how do we know about it?
2: The mine, or I guess it wasn't the mine that was discovered. The minerals were the mine became, uh, was actually discovered in the late 1800s by, uh, a man named Beringer, you guessed it because it's called Beringer Hill. Uh, so it was named after the person who found it, <laughs> uh, John Beringer, <laughs> he, he did some digging around there, poking around. He wasn't really sure what these minerals were, but it was fascinating and kind of a, uh, just a, a local, um, fascinating thing. Uh, Eventually, some of these samples wound up into the hands of a geologist named William Hidden. um, And he kind of facilitated uh, doing some more research into this place. Uh, The mine or the hill actually changed property ownership a few times. Uh, So Hidden first bought it through uh, another geologist from Uh, And then uh, it went into the hands of a company that was actually owned by Thomas Edison. Uh, Edison was looking for materials uh, as he was, you know, doing the whole light bulb thing that we always talk about. (laughs) Uh, Then it changed hands again to a different company, to the Nurtst uh, Lamp Company, which they actually made street lamps. Uh, That was growing in popularity at the time around the turn of the century um and uh some of their engineers had figured out a way to uh use the minerals that were found at Beringer Hill uh for a new type of street lamp uh more gas powered thing and so gas lit yes street lamp yeah okay gas whatever you want to say
3: you can you I can was use just your making technical a technical gaslighting joke but it was stupid never mind oh
2: <laughs> yeah you I was gonna try and return and gaslight you about your gaslighting joke, but then, never mind. Anyways, moving on. After that smooth smooth speed bump, Um, (laughs) so a few different companies owned it, uh, and then uh, that was that was yeah.
0: That was the gist of it. it. Explain to us how the heck this went from being a mine Mm -hmm. to being under a huge lake.
2: Yeah. So someone had to put the water there, right?
0: (laughs) The water had to get there somehow.
2: uh, I guess I should describe this hill. It's not just like a giant hill. It was actually a, uh, it was described as about 40 feet tall, uh, just kind of this protruding thing out in the middle of a flat. It was probably, I don't know, 200 feet long or so. I have, I have some dimensions that I quote in the article. Um, But, uh, so it was was sitting there next to the banks of the Colorado river, um, kind of upstream. And the interest in these minerals kind of died off. The Nerds Lamp Company actually found some better ways to do their gaslit uh, lamps, and so uh, their operations kind of faded into oblivion. Uh, the there's actually a an employee who operated the mine for a brief period of time, and one of the the fascinating stories. Uh, I won't waste your time going into detail in the podcast on it, but it's a fascinating story about how he left. Uh, go read the article. Um, So after all that happened, it just kind of died off. People weren't, you know, obviously the the stuff that we use rares for now were not technologies that were around 100 years ago. Uh, You know, we use it for computer chips and electric vehicle batteries and all this sorts of modern technology that they just didn't have um, so they weren't actually looking for the resources for those purposes so they were just like eh whatever it kind of just lost interest I think they did mine a pretty good portion of the resources that were there too and um, so while that was kind of interest in that was dying off, there was interest in something else that was gaining a lot of traction. Uh, even long before Beringer found the Hill, there was a man named Adam Johnson. Uh, he went on to gain the nickname Stovepipe in the Civil War. <laughs> uh, that's a fascinating story that I don't even go into in my article, but um, fascinating. So there, there's so many stories here. I, I don't know how I can it in so few words. And I see how excited
0: you are about it. And that's fun too. There's just so many things in your brain that you want to share. And
2: I can't get them all out in the same organized manner. Anyways, I don't even know where I was. (laughs) So, Adam Stovepipe Johnson, uh, he was a surveyor out in West Texas, and he surveyed the land. He actually found uh, this spot up the river, uh, on the Colorado River, and he's like, this would be a perfect place for a dam. Uh, so he had a dream of, of building a dam there. Of course, when he wa- went off to the Civil War, he ended up losing his eyesight, um, and then he came back. He actually founded Marble Falls, Uh fascinating story in and of itself, but All that to say, he didn't end up building a dam, but he kind of laid the groundwork for it of having that idea. Uh, And where he wanted to build the dam is eventually where it ended up being built. Uh, There was a company uh, that started uh, getting involved in it. Samuel Insull was a business magnate in the 1900s, and uh, he was kind of backing this project to build a dam on the the river. Uh, People wanted a dam because... Uh, it it's, it's now known as a region in the country called flash flood alley, uh, the hill country area. And so they wanted flood control. They wanted uh better irrigation for farmers and they wanted electricity. Mm-hmm. So a dam seemed like a, a pretty damn good idea. Uh, <laughs> oh <my> gosh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh <brother>. um, <laughs> So Insul kind of financed this project, uh, but then in, I think, 1931 or 1932, the project was f- about 45% complete, and Insul's whole empire goes toppling down. He goes bankrupt. Uh, I think he ends up fleeing the country and going to France just because <laughs> he has some, some financial problems. Mm. And so with all of that, the, the project on the dam just comes to a halt. Uh, And they're left here like, what do we do? We have a a dam that's half built. We have dumped about $3.5 million into this project. $3.5 million at the time of the the 1930s. So quite a bit of money uh, back then. is a lot of money now. Look up how
3: much that would be today.
2: um, It's more than I have. It's probably less than Elon Musk wants to spend on Twitter. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But. Uh, so now they're, they're stuck at like not having a dam, but then Ralph Morrison, a businessman from San Antonio, uh, steps in with a plan, uh, along with Alvin Wirtz, who's a, a, he was a state Senator from like 1925 to 1930. And then you have a Congressman James Buchanan, uh, not to be confused with James Buchanan, the president, <laughs> this is a Congressman from West Texas.
0: Pronounced Buchanan.
2: It would be 60 million. Sorry. To- 60 million. Yes. Yeah. That's- wow. A lot. Per the inflation <laughs> calculator. Anyway. Um, so $60 million already dumped into this project. <laughs> uh, so Ralph Morrison comes along with Wirtz and Buchanan, pronounced Buck Cannon, apparently. Um, and I think he actually had a nickname. His name was uh, James Paul Buck Buck now maybe i don't i don't know how the pronunciation came maybe he was just trying to differentiate himself from the president tangent Uh, anyways (laughs) you're doing great am i yes how are are. we on time we're probably like i could go for like three hours on this
0: i know you could i will several more minutes
2: okay cool um oh no my screen is dying because (laughs) i haven't moved my mouse so long
0: you've been talking
2: yeah uh So these three gentlemen come up with a plan to finance the project, not with private money, but with federal funds. So they go to the Hoover administration. Hoover basically tells them, no, we're not going to give you the money. Uh, Hoover
3: of the famed dam. Yes, yes, Hoover the
2: same dam. And they also are pointing to this dam and they're like, hey, this is going to be just like the Hoover Dam. It's going to bring a lot of electricity to the region. They're saying it's going to, you know, provide electricity for everything from Dallas to San Antonio, um, just like wide swaths of the state. Um, and so they have this whole plan. Uh, the Hoover administration kind of pushes back against it, uh, but... Uh, For them, they saw it as fortunate when FDR got elected president uh, the following year, or maybe it was the same year, actually. Um, And, of course, FDR ran on this whole program of the New Deal trying to push through the Public Works Administration and spending lots and lots and gobs and gobs of money on different infrastructure projects and whatnot. So they saw this as a golden opportunity. Um, So they go to the Roosevelt administration, and they say, hey... Can you give us money to to finance this project? Can you can the government lend us some funds? The
0: Roosevelt? Did you say Roosevelt? Y- yeah. Roosevelt?
2: Roosevelt? I've heard Roosevelt? of Roosevelt? Really? I've never heard yeah.
0: Roosevelt. Oh, cool.
2: Okay, so they go to FDR. <laughs> <laughs> and FDR's guy basically says, uh I actually don't think I can do that to a private for-profit company. And so that's not
3: surprising coming from him. Yeah.
2: That's <laughs> true. They're like, okay, well, what are we what are we supposed to do? And so what they end up doing is pushing legislation in the state legislature for the Lower Colorado River Authority. And so this is where the Lower Colorado River, River Authority actually originated from. Wirtz, who's a former state senator, he's actually uh had been involved in other water projects like this, uh, and developing different water districts. Um gets involved in it and, and kind of pulls some strings behind the scenes, uh, working with other legislators that he knew. Of course, he's not a senator now and after 1930. Um, some also say that he was involved in the redistricting process and was was pulling strings there uh, to try Man, and to you're get, just <laughs>
3: tying in all of your stuff. Yeah.
2: <laughs> they were trying to get—supposedly uh, now, I, I don't know. It, it sounds like it was a little bit—could have been either way because Buchanan was already on board uh, with the project— uh, but the redistricting could have added some counties that were more in the Colorado River region, giving him more incentive to do it. So you have Buchanan and Wirtz, uh, a former state senator and current congressman, working on the project to try and get uh, the legislation passed at the state legislature to get the Lower L- Colorado River Authority done. So they get Ma Ferguson to call a fourth special session. <laughs>
0: Ma Ferguson, <laughs> a non-consecutive yes. yes. two-time governor.
3: Yeah. Who sent the Texas Rangers after Bonnie and Clyde.
0: That is, yeah, we always, we always talk about Ma Ferguson and we always talk about her in different facts. I like the two non-consecutive. You like the Bonnie and Clyde. She's
3: got a lot mm. of interesting facts. She does. Toys. Well, also
0: her husband. It's yeah, a whole I, other deal.
3: I brought her up
2: in the Santa Claus story. And now... Because she pardoned Santa Claus and then Santa Hill. Claus robbed the bank. And now she's having a special session for them to create the Lower Colorado Roof Authority. There yeah. you go. And so uh, they do... There's a little bit of opposition there, but... The legislation makes its way through Buchanan, uh, which is really interesting at the time. They're already calling it the Buchanan Dam. Like, they're referring to the project by his name because he's the one who is like, I'm going to get the federal money. And everybody's like, yay. And they're, so they're, they're cheering him on, and it's already the Buchanan Dam is what it's called. It, before that, it was the Hamilton Dam by uh, various debates on, on where the name Hamilton came from. Anyways. <laughs> I I see Mac's eyes just widening like hurry up and get to the end of the story so I will they get the lower Colorado River Authority done the next year they get federal funding uh, from the government I think it's like 15 million dollars or something like that through Roosevelt's FDR's uh, great whole great new deal great deal (laughs) great new deal whatever they called it green new deal oh my gosh (laughs) one of those deals (laughs) one of the deals um they got the funding for it and pushed it through. Uh, and so then the Buchanan Dam went live in 1937. Lake Buchanan became a thing. Beringer Hill became not a thing. <laughs> and that is how there's now rare earths. One of the largest deposits of rare earths in Texas is now sitting underwater.
3: Currently inaccessible.
2: Yeah. Wow. Unless you snorkel down there. Now, sometimes the the water levels do fluctuate. Um, and so you can... Uh, there's actually an article uh, that someone wrote in 2008. Uh, they've, I, I think some people have been able to go out when the water levels are low and find some rare
3: earth stuff left behind. So, yeah. yeah, well, That would be pretty profitable if we could access it for a number of different reasons, whether it's, you know... Uh, I'm totally blanking on the name of them, uh, solar panels, that's the thing, and uh, semiconductors and all yeah. that stuff. And the All the car batteries that car Elon batteries, Musk needs nope. for his Tesla Cybertruck.
0: I think for Christmas I'm going to buy um, you three boys, not Isaiah since he's not with us today, but uh, scuba gear so that you can go down and hmm. harvest it. But then you can give yeah. it to me and then I can sell it. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i will give you a portion of the proceeds so you're
3: like investing in a business then. correct i'm uh, starting so. it sounds it like business. a
0: business
2: we'll, i'll go along with it and then i'll just like we'll cut you out
0: that sounds about right <laughs> that sounds about right well daniel thank you for that folks definitely go to the piece to read all about these details and very fascinating story in texas history brad um we're going to hit this topic before we go on to Twitter real fast. But um, late last week, a Texas House member announced that he would file legislation in his chamber, mirroring what Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has you know, talked about, a Florida-style parental rights and education bill. Um, who was that and what did he have to say?
3: Representative Gary Gates announced he'd be filing that legislation in the house that uh, prohibits discussion of sexual topics in at least K through three classrooms. That was what the Florida bill does. Um, It is certainly possible uh, that Texas, if they do pass something, does something broader than that. But right now that's the baseline from Florida. Representative Gates said Disney's conduct disregards me as a parent and feels like a betrayal talking about uh, what Disney's, executive officer said on some zoom thing about how they want to make at least half of all characters lgbt or something like that so they also opposed the florida bill specifically i think that's the policy focused criticism but He added, as Texas moves forward, we will support Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's legislation in the Senate to restrict how teachers talk about sexual or can talk about sexual orientation in the classroom, mirroring yours in Florida. This was a letter to Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida. Likewise, I will put put forth legislation in the Texas House for the same purpose.
0: Talk to us about what the speaker had to say about this proposal.
3: So at, uh, I think it was in Nagadoches, maybe not uh, some somewhere in East Texas in the speaker's district. Um, he was discussing this issue and he said the house will take a thorough look at what's being taught in schools. And so that extends beyond this uh, specific issue, but um, he indicated that this would obviously be something they will have to contend with because Dan Patrick is very clearly hell-bent on pushing this through the Senate, which means it will go to the House in some fashion. Uh, But he also added, as Republicans who always talk about cancel culture, we need to be mindful of cancel culture in the legislature and singling out companies and corporations. Um, I don't know that that's what the House wants to be focused on next session. One thing I didn't mention was that dan patrick in conjunction with this uh classroom sexual discussion bill um he also wants to explore moving removing pension money from disney similar to what we talked about with the fossil fuel divestment earlier it would be a similar bill um governor greg abbott though has not yet said anything on this issue um we'll see if he does it all but um You know, as we talked about with school choice, education is a massive issue right now. And um, that will continue through the election.
0: This might be another, uh, you know, uh, point of contention between Governor Ron DeSantis and Governor Greg Abbott. More comparison. These two governors are constantly compared um, by their constituents and those at large, particularly in light of a potential presidential run for both of them. Um, So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. will be. Thank you, Bradley. Okay, gentlemen, we are going to pivot to Twitter and talk about uh, notable tweets from the week. Um, Daniel, I want to start with you. We've kind of talked about this already today or we've alluded to it but what's going on with elon and twitter
2: elon musk as i mentioned is trying to buy (laughs) twitter he already bought a pretty good chunk of twitter i think he it was like what 9.1 percent yeah uh which is a plurality stake is that well he he's the largest individual largest What's the, what's the proper terms? He's the individual with the largest amount of shares. Okay. Um, so he owns quite a bit, quite a big chunk. He was. It, they had this weird whole bringing them onto the board and then not bringing them onto the board thing, uh, which was a little bit interesting and confusing. Um, and now he has made an offer to buy all the shares of Twitter for fifty four dollars and twenty cents a share.
0: What are they valued at right now? Um,
2: I want to say less than
0: that by like six dollars or something, right?
2: Uh, more than $6. I think it's, let me pull it up right here. Twitter is at $46.35. So okay. yeah, yeah, you're about right. Um, so about eight bucks more, um, which is a, a significant amount of money ahead of the, the shares. Yeah. Uh, it also puts the board in kind of this awkward situation because, uh, if they refuse to buy it, then the, and, and Musk sells his shares like the stock is going to tank some. Uh, so that could be interesting. Yeah. It's also interesting the number that he chose. I don't think anybody has pointed this out, but Elon Musk is known for making uh, memes about 420. <laughs> so $54.20. I don't think that was a coincidence.
0: Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that would totally be the case. Hmm. Well, we'll have to keep watching what happens. Hayden, I know you have a tweet as well that caught your eye on the same subject.
1: Oh, Robert. O'Neill, who famously was one of the seals who shot Osama bin Laden. Um, oh, that's right. He, yeah, he, he. I believe he was on the on the team. He was. On Wasn't the, the team. guy that shot? Um, he tweet. Yeah, he tweeted. Um, show me on the little blue bird logo where Elon Musk hurt you, <laughs> and then he put the little laugh face emoji. And y'all, I don't know why this cracks me up, but I just I picture Elon Musk just going to bed after like he buys the shares on. On uh, Twitter. And <laughs> then he's going to go on the board and he's like, you know what, never mind. And then he's going to bed he's like, you know what, I'm just going to buy the whole thing. <laughs> Gets up the <laughs> next morning, runs down run, to the SEC. Here's 43, 43 billion, billion. You know, million, here you know, go. Just casually. Or just, you know. And then he goes to, I don't know, P. Terry's for lunch or something. <laughs> and that's, I was, yeah, that just cracked me up. I was going to make fun of you or choosing P.
0: Terry's. I'm like, wait, no, he's in Austin. He could totally
1: go yeah. to P. Terry's. That's <laughs> so crazy. Yeah. Staying
3: in a massive Riverside mansion according to some reports I've heard. Yeah. Some journalists went through a bunch of, I mean, regular roles. role to find that out. And yeah. yeah, I mean, if I was Elon Musk and I was living
2: in Austin, I would live in a mansion
3: too. Oh, yeah. and oh, yeah. I would still go to Pete Terry's. but it's not, his, it's not his mansion. He's staying in someone Oh, somewhere oh else. he's renting. Oh, he, I remember. I don't even know if he's renting. I don't know if he's paying anything. Oh my gosh. But yeah.
0: I can't imagine like the richest man in the world is staying in your mansion and you don't make him pay anything. <laughs>
3: I'm sure there's something that comes along with it, a yeah, Tesla. Sure
0: so. <laughs> free Tesla. Oh, my gosh. Well, Hayden, that's a solid one. Brad, what do you have for us? Is it also Elon Musk related? It
3: is um, not wow. related to Elon Musk at all. Um, we can make a connection. I'm good at this. I'm sure you, I'm can. Sure you can. Go ahead and try. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, with the, in the, uh, the education theme that we've talked about, um, this is a big issue, and um, there's been a lot of discussion about books and materials that are in school libraries and someone that has been following this a lot is representative Jared Patterson. He's been, um, tweeting out examples of books that are, um, some of them are very obviously sexually explicit. Um, others are more imbued with like political, certain political, um, language, things like that. But, um, right now or earlier this week, he tweeted out another example of a book called, uh, boys aren't blue. All boys aren't blue. Um, and I'm not going to read the passages because it is extremely explicit, but, um, Patterson tweeted more expo- sexually explicit materials in Frisco ISD and Sanger ISD to districts in his house district. Uh, neither district signed the pledge to not knowingly do business with vendors who supply pornography to Texas schools that's in reference to a letter he put out he and uh, i think it was like 30 other house members put out asking these superintendents to sign an agreement to do all they can to get these books out of the their, their uh, school libraries now the issue comes to like these book supp- book vendors they supply these districts with like thousands of books And so these very sexually explicit materials slip in. Um, The question is who's putting them there. That's not really been found out yet, Um, but it's going to continue to be an issue. And especially the more books they find um, in these libraries, if you want to, for some reason, see what is in this book that that was found in, like eight school libraries throughout those districts um go to his his twitter and you can read the passages um but it is uh, definitely yes
0: wow very good one. yeah go ahead daniel
2: so how would lawmakers potentially push back against this stuff would it be like property tax related stuff
3: well you could do that You I know, mean, we saw um in last session we saw the legislature uh, with the police defunding situation um, threaten to freeze rates if they have deemed a a, um, locality to have defunded their police department I assume you could do something like that Um, there's also just the public pressure campaign which Patterson is doing right now um, criticizing them a lot Mm -hmm. Um, so I suppose there's a bunch of different things they could do I was going to try and
2: make an Elon Musk connection with property taxes since uh, tax, local property tax breaks for Tesla and something. I, I'm trying to make the connection. Well, and also I keep don't it
3: think it works on this one. Sorry. I, I tried. I'm just looking Gotta at Daniel. bonus points for trying. As
0: soon as he asked that question, I just looked at it. And I was like, oh, my gosh. He's trying right now. And I knew exactly <laughs> what you were doing. Lord in heaven. Okay, folks. Well, I'm going to share one tweet that I thought was notable from the chairman of the Texas GOP, Matt Rinaldi. Matt Rinaldi, a former state legislator state house member, um, uh, recently became Texas GOP chair after Alan West opted to run for governor. He's been very critical of Governor Abbott throughout his entire tenure, and even when he was in the legislature, primarily even since then, um, in terms of the COVID lockdowns, he had a lot to say about the governor's approach to coronavirus, um, even some of the reforms that were put in place in the legislature. Very interesting to watch, and he had before, I believe it was before, and help me in my timeline here, Brad, but I believe he endorsed Don Huffines before he became chairman, mm-hmm. Just as a former lawmaker, he endorsed yeah, I think that Huffines. was in
3: like 2020 because he and Huffines were going around on the speaking circuit with uh, True Texas Project. That's
0: right. That's right. Um, kind of talking about a lot of these coronavirus shutdowns, yep. and, and
3: like you said, criticizing Abbott a lot.
0: Yes, very vocally. Yeah. I mean, literally on a speaking tour, criticizing the governor. So it is notable when um, this chairman of the Texas GOP, who has you know towed a different line since he entered this office, yeah. for yeah. sure. He he,
3: he, pulled he pulled his endorsement. He pulled his. Endorsement I'm came. GOP chair. And
0: though he still will criticize the governor, um, he's not operated as a bomb thrower as he d- was seen previously in mm-hmm. the same capacity that he was before. But interesting nonetheless to see in light of the um, border agreement that Hayden talked about earlier um, between Governor Garcia and the state of Texas, um, Matt Rinaldi tweeted the decision to apply pressure so agreements like this could be reached is good policy. The flack Governor Abbott is getting from the Austin press make me like like it even more long way to go on the border but this is meaningful good job matt rinaldi look at that saying yes to or say you know praising something that the governor is doing yep. very interesting to see notable for sure i just thought scrolling through my twitter feed that, that was a very fascinating take from the texas gop chairman
3: yeah
0: and the last texas the last two texas gop chairmen, alan west and rinaldi have both been very very critical of the yep. governor they've Alan Westmore so would position himself directly opposite the of governor. Abbott. He sued <laughs> he the sued governor, the, and he ran, ran against office. him. <laughs> <laughs> so very yeah. interesting to see that kind of from the the chair of the party.
3: It's also it's interesting, that, you know, the, the policy is similar to uh, what Huffines put out during his gubernatorial run. Um, I think Huffines called for. Enti- shutting down the um, commerce entirely across yeah. the entire border. And this was one, one entryway, I think maybe two. Um, but yeah, it's just, just interesting yeah. seeing the, the lines that were drawn and now are kind of melding together.
0: Well, those increased inspection times were a big part of that too, right? It's like the time it takes to get across the border. Very fascinating. Um, okay. Gentlemen, any final thoughts for our listeners?
2: I have one more quick tweet to share. Okay. I just saw this. Diogo Bernal retweeted this. Uh, it's from account. His name is Superman Always. Uh, he said, I saw this online and now it's the only Superman I really want to see made. And there's a picture of Clark Kent in the description. It says, I want to see a, a comic about the CIA trying to murder Clark Kent and making it look like an accident. Not because they know he's Superman, but he's a really good journalist. Make it a comedy because the CIA assassins can't figure out why their attempts keep failing. Now, I want to see this movie too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get some screenwriters on this. Daniel, your next novel. Yeah, there we go. There you go. Well, folks, thank you for listening, and we will catch you next week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you've been enjoying our podcast, it would be awesome if you would review us on iTunes. And if there's a guest you'd love to hear on our show, give us a shout on Twitter tweet at the Texan News. We're so proud to have you standing with us as we seek to provide real journalism in an age of disinformation. We're paid for exclusively by readers like you, so it's important we all do our part to support the Texan by subscribing and telling your friends about us. God bless you, and God bless Texas.